Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 87 of the Hashtag Bob Life podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Blaze, and this is the show all about thriving in the mom stage in life. This summer, in our Summer Rewind, we are revisiting great stories from this show and what we are calling the Summer of Storytelling. I think we women need to know each other's stories and share our own stories with others. When we do that, we learn about the grace and goodness of the Lord and are able to extend grace and goodness towards others. On this episode, Candy Blankman shares her story of how she raised faith-filled adult children. Isn't that what we all want? To raise children who faithfully walk with Jesus all the days of their lives, especially as they launch into adulthood? Though there's no magic way to make this happen, let's revisit my conversation with Candy and learn from her wisdom and experience. Hi, Candy. Hey, Cynthia. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. Candy, I want to start by telling you a personal story. So your son is Jeff, who plays in our worship band. And his wife, Jackie, your daughter-in-law, I count as one of my dearest friends. You might know that I met them about 15 years ago when they began attending the church where I was currently working with youth. Uh, Let me tell you the story of why they're both so special to me. When I met them... When I was working at that church, it was at the point in my life when I had realized after years of counseling that my then husband was abusive and that I needed to leave him. And since I was working with him at the church, I also had realized I needed to resign from that job. And so I couldn't work with him and I needed to seek my own healing. And I had decided that I would not fight for relationships that he and I had in common. He could have them all. I wasn't going to put people in a position of having to choose between us. Mm -hmm. And I knew he was staying on staff, and I didn't want to do anything that might cause, like, a family to disconnect from the church or to feel negatively about the church. So I actually went to a number of families, told them I was leaving, hugged and cried, and just walked away, just sort of released all those relationships. Mm -hmm. So I actually tried to do this with Jackie. (laughs) I um, We had been only acquaintances for about a year, but we had definitely become friends. And I went to her. I told her I was getting a divorce. I told her my song and dance. And I essentially tried to break up with her. And I just remember so vividly, and this is now over 14 years ago, her saying, that's stupid. Why wouldn't I want to be your friend? And we both cried. And she told me, you're going through a divorce. You need a friend right now. And she was the only person who Mm -hmm. said that to me Mm -hmm. of everyone I went to. Mm -hmm. And I have loved her so much ever since Mm -hmm. because of that. And after that, your son Jeff and Jackie, they adopted me. And we would go to the beach together and talk forever. And they were my true friends. Mm -hmm. And probably at that point, I felt like some of my only Mm -hmm. true friends as I was going through that. So I have to thank you for raising a son who would extend grace and love instead of judgment Mm -hmm. to me at that Mm -hmm. point in my life. And for raising someone who would pick an amazing person like Jackie to be his wife. Because only, you know, it takes a certain kind of person to choose a certain kind of, you know, a certain kind of woman like Jackie is. And she's amazing. So thank you, Candy, for doing that. I'm so excited for, or for raising that kind of son. I'm, I'm so thankful to sit down and talk to you today. To, I want to hear more of your story. And I also want to talk to you about being a parent. So let's start by just getting to know you a little bit. Um, where are you from? Where did you grow up? I am from northern Minnesota, way up in the tundra. Cold. Tundra. Cold, remote, rural area. Uh, grew up there and then moved around a little bit. But, um, you know, I was a poor country girl, Cynthia. 
And um, I moved to the big city when I was in fifth grade. It had 8,000 people in that wow, city. That big was city. big time. <laughs> um, and I had four siblings. I was the fourth of five. And so I just, you know, that's where I grew up, and that's where it all started. And tell us about the beginning of your faith story. How did you come to know Jesus personally? Well, I was raised in a Christian home, and I think I was in church when I was four days old. And I never left. (laughs) The kids at my church, I did a confirmation retreat recently, and they got such a kick out of that because they asked me the question, when did you stop going to church, Pastor Blankman? I said, well, actually, I never did stop going to church. I know that's really weird, but I just have always been. But I think it was, I remember probably the first, one of the first words I learned was Jesus. Mm. You know, it was just always part of the vocabulary, always part of our life. And lots of different experiences reinforce that faith. But I honestly, Cynthia, I don't have one of those days and times where my life turned all around and I knew Jesus personally for the first time. It felt like I'd always known Jesus, and I'm really, really grateful for that. That must be something, and I don't know if you've ever sort of evaluated it, but that must be something about also the family that you were raised in, that you never felt this need to sort of rebel against the faith of your family. (laughs) Well, that's another story for another podcast. (laughs) Because I have a sister who was only 15 months older than I was who took a totally different direction. Mm, It happens, yeah. Same family, same history, you know, and but thank be to God, it took her a little longer, but she's also now a Presbyterian minister or oh, really? and a hospice chaplain. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah, that's a very cool story. So then there is something about your family because she <laughs> came back. Yeah. Well, she's a lot better at it than I am. So, um, How did you feel the call into ministry? It was actually, it started really pretty early, Cynthia, but it was gradual. It was kind of incremental. I remember even as an eight-year-old being in a this little country church in a evening service where they were commissioning two people to go to Alaska as missionaries. And I can remember just the tears just flowing down my face. I was just sobbing, partly because I loved this young couple. They had small children, and I think I used to help take care of them or something, maybe. Uh, but I just remember thinking, I want to go. I want to go. I want to do that. I want to go somewhere for Jesus. But what happened was, Throughout my life, I did a variety of vocational things, and I was—I like to compare it to Adam, and when he named the animals, it's like, <laughs> no, that's not it. Uh, that's not it. And you know, the scripture says he didn't find a helpmate, someone that was equal to him or matched who he was. And so I did all these other things, and then I had this opportunity to do ministry, and it was like all of a sudden, it was like, wow. This is what I'm supposed to be. What was the first thing you did? Well, in ministry, yeah, um, I did actually. Drew and I did. My husband Drew and I did youth ministry first, and then I did a little bit of women's ministry, speaking and teaching and things like that. And then I did a children's ministry job where I actually got paid in a very large Presbyterian church. And um, one time, accidentally, in a staff meeting, they didn't have anybody to help with worship. And the associate pastor kind of looked at me like, well, I guess all we got is you. Would you, <laughs> would you help? I said, sure, I'll, I'll help. And I remember Cynthia putting on that robe. And I, I think I just led a prayer or read a scripture or something. But I thought, wow, this is home. This is where mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be. Mm-hmm. And I had three kids at that time. And, you know, all st- I thought it would be 
decades before that could ever happen. Mm. But there really was an experience at that time where I knew I was supposed, this is what I was supposed to be doing. It was really fun. And then did you go to seminary at that point? Not right then, but actually that church is the one that encouraged me to go to seminary. And they actually gave me a scholarship every year I was in seminary. Wow. And it was a church that had never had a female pastor before. So it was especially affirming because I would have uh, people come up to me and say, you know, I don't know. I didn't think I was so hot on women being pastors. But there's something about when you lead worship that is okay it's okay <laughs> it's okay it'll do it'll do yeah. so you must have gone to school part-time then if you were a mom no really i you went just dove in i dove in well I what i did was when i was teaching um high school and junior high school i went to seminary at night just to test the wall i didn't even know if i could do it academically honestly i'm no i'm no brainiac um, I am much more. I have much more relational intelligence than I do academic kinds of intelligence. So I wasn't even sure if I could do the work. So I went to seminary at night while I was teaching school, and found out I could do it. And then um, decided lots of different things circumstantially happened where my husband's job just kind of came to a screeching halt. And halt. And I knew I wasn't supposed to stay in teaching, and I got this opportunity for a scholarship. And so we went moved across the country. I went full-time to seminary. I worked 30 hours a week and had three kids. Goodness. It just about killed me. Because <laughs> I did go to full-time seminary and work, but I did not have children. And yeah. I cannot imagine having to do all three of those things. Well, you may have to interview the three of them sometime and find <laughs> out what the residual of that was. But they I, loved it because we were on a campus. Uh, we, I went to Gordon-Conwell. You went to Gordon-Conwell? Yes. No. Yes. I went to Gordon-Conwell. You did? When did what? you go? I graduated in 2002. Oh, I graduated in 96, so a few years before you. Wow, but that wasn't that much. No, I was, I, I was a late bloomer. took me some I time. I started in 98. Really? That's crazy. That is crazy. I did not know that. That's but you amazing. know that campus, it's wonderful for kids. Absolutely. Hills and valleys and uh, basketball court. When we were there, a swimming pool. And did you live on kids, campus? Ki yes. Kids, kids, kids everywhere. You know, and everybody kind of watched over each other's yeah. kids. Yeah. And living in, like, the family housing. Like, that must have been so much fun. Yeah, the kids loved it. I mean, they still yeah. have good memories of it. Still keep in touch with some of those kids. Yeah. yeah. That's so awesome. I had no yeah. idea, Candy. Another reason I love you. Uh, I loved going to school there. I thought it was yeah. an amazing seminary. Yeah. It was it was very it was what I needed at the time. It was yeah. really good. Yeah. That's so cool. Um and you know that actually one of the questions I really wanted to ask me, which ask you, which is kind of even funny that that man sort of made that comment about, Oh, I kinda like it when you preach. Um, because it's something that has been raised as an option for me, but I was just curious why you decided to seek ordination. And, you know, as a woman, there's a lot of debate in the church about mm -hmm. women yeah. in senior pastoral positions, mm -hmm. though this is something the Presbyterian Church supports, mm -hmm. uh, obviously, since you're an ordained pastor. But I was just curious, um, what, why did you decide to seek that next step of ordination? Um, can, can I be really brutally honest? Absolutely. Okay, two reasons. One is a very practical one, pay grade. Yeah, there were lots of churches that I could have worked in, but I would have been paid a pittance of what I would have been paid if I got the degree and worked in a different church, first and foremost. Second, I wanted to do a broad range of ministry. I didn't want to be a children's minister or a women's ministry director. I knew that I was not a specialist. I was a generalist, and I love to preach. I just, it's... 
you know, some people say, how, how can you possibly preach every Sunday or whatever? And I say, how can you possibly not? Because it's so much a part of who I am. So I knew that in order to do all those things that I wanted to do, that I felt I was called to do and really had a passion to do, I would have to get the degree. I would have to do that and do the work necessary to be um, have the Master Divinity, be ordained, and then have the capacity to look for a position where I could do all of those things that I wanted to do. That's awesome. Um, it's just such a neat step. And I don't know. Who knows if that's what I'm going to be called to do or not. But we'll see. Yeah. We'll Never see. too late. <laughs> I know. So let's talk about you as a mom. I know that you have three adult children. And is it four grandchildren? Six, Cynthia. Six Two more since we last talked. Yeah, <laughs> they're coming like crazy. <laughs> That's so amazing. Um, how did how did becoming a mom change you as a person? Um, more patience and less frenetic. I think maybe from having kids, I really learned what it mean meant to be present with people, because uh, you know kids are very perceptive and very honest and my kids would say to me mom you're not really listening or they would show me something and I'd go oh yeah and they go you don't really care I mean they would call you on it so I think I really learned uh, what it means to be present with people by having children hmm. mm -hmm. and then of course there's always the issue if you look away for very long something happens that's crazy so you have to be present you have to be present <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my girlfriends mm -hmm. and I call it the small stage just the keeping them alive stage oh yes <laughs> yes and I barely did that <laughs> I actually feel like I may have just transitioned out of the keeping them alive stage like now that oh. they're six and eight I can take my eyes off mm -hmm. of them and I'm not afraid mm -hmm. they're just gonna keel over and like yeah. kill themselves in any second. Yeah, well. I mean I still I keep my eyes on them don't worry yeah well, but I'm saying in the teen years there's another phase of <laughs> keeping them alive <laughs> It's a different kind of phase. Yeah, different phase. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, how did becoming a mom change your relationship with Jesus? Wow. I think it is probably, there are probably other ways, but I think it is probably one of the best ways to experience and understand the bottomless love of God. Mm. Because you, you have one child, and it just consumes you, both attention, affection, all that. And you think, how could I ever have do another one? And you have another one, and it just expands. And, and then I had three. And then first grandchild, Jeff and Jackie's first little Lolo, I thought, oh, I will never love another child like this one. <laughs> and I've got six of them, five more, and every time one comes along, there's more love, it's deeper, it's richer, it's... And so it just, it just reminds me that God's love is bottomless. It's just bottomless. And without that... I don't know how a person gets along. I don't know how a mom does anything without knowing that that love is always available to her. And so you can give it to other people too, and your children especially. And that, that bottomless love also only comes from being tapped into Jesus, right? Oh, yeah. You'll run out fast if you try to do it on your own steam. That's for sure. Yeah. Yes. But it's it goes both ways. Once you begin to experience that, you realize, well, this is how God loves me. Hmm. This is how the Father treasures me and five billion other people in the mm -hmm. world you know wow how crazy is that that's a reminder i need i'm sure lots of moms need to yeah. is yeah that reminder of being god's treasure ourselves oh, i think we're yeah. so used to sort of being in the stage where 
we're giving and giving uh-huh, and giving. Uh-huh. And it takes, a, uh, you know, a stopping and, and remembering yeah. you know, that, that we are loved first. Yeah, yeah. And out of that love is how we love. Yeah. And that we just, I mean, that's probably when I get frustrated or angry is when I'm not sort of tapping into yeah. Christ's love for me yeah. and loving out of that. Yeah, I love the picture that keeps coming to me as a mother and a grandmother is how much you love to have your kids crawl up in your lap. And I think that's really a metaphor, that that's the way God's love is for us. That's the way Jesus loves us. Not just from a distance, not just theoretically, but just longs to have us crawl up in his lap and just be held. And mm. boy, it doesn't matter how old you are, how many kids you have, even if you don't have any kids, you need that kind of mm. need that kind of lap to crawl up into and just know just as you are, you are loved without bottom, unconditionally. Mm. It's really important. That's really beautiful, especially my youngest. My six-year-old still loves to crawl up into mm-hmm. my lap. And I'm really trying to even sort of rethink parenting a little bit lately because I have been reading a book that's sort of been challenging me not to punish but to more, like, extend, like, to sort of lean in versus mm-hmm. to punish. And so I've been trying more to, like, um, lean in with hugs and snuggles, you know, when there's misbehavior mm-hmm. versus just to send them to their rooms. And it's mm-hmm. it's been something I've kind of been reevaluating and processing mm-hmm. through. But mm-hmm. I see that in my daughter so much, you know, when mm-hmm. she gets angry, if I can get her to, like, mm-hmm. be pulled in for a hug, it doesn't – she can't do it right away. Yeah. You know, but yeah. when she can, yeah. when she lets herself, sure. it's um, – Sure. Yeah. I yeah. see that that just falling yep. into my arms is, yep. is sweet. Um so I have to admit, Candy, that I'm very, very curious about you as a parent because I think you know that Jackie is part of my my dinner group that has been meeting probably 14 years. And one thing my friend Christine and I kind of always laugh about is how extraordinarily healthy her and Jeff's marriage is. Sometime I'm going to have to make Jackie be interviewed. Christine and I both admit that we come from places of pain, and so do both of our husbands. And our marriages are often a lot of work as we navigate that past pain and trying to think in healthy ways. It's a lot of reprogramming for both of us. So there's something about the way both Jeff and Jackie interact with each other that is really healthy and that they the way they think positively about each other extend grace like they're mutually encourage each other p- to pursue their own passions and dreams and Christina I like to say this is what marriage looks like when each of you come from a healthy Christian family mm-hmm. and as they both do and so so not that you can give me all your thoughts on parenting right now <laughs> but I'm curious if not that you have uh, now that you have raised healthy adult children who love Jesus do you look back and say Oh, I'm really glad I did that, or that really worked for me. Oh, you look back a lot, um, but you know, ultimately, it's the grace of God and the work of God that really builds these kids. Because Cynthia, honestly, I know kids who have come out of tragic, horrible homes who are stellar human beings, absolutely, and devout Christian servants. And I know some kids who have come out of some pretty stellar homes who are lost souls. Mm-hmm. So it's not a one-for-one. One. Totally, and it's I not a make, guarantee. I yeah, get I want to make that clear. I also want to say all good marriages, all marriages are hard work. Yeah, I know. You know, that your work is different than my work, but it's all uh, it all takes a lot of work. And so I want to encourage m- moms and dads and husbands and wives that it's a lot of work always. And it never... Gets, I don't think it ever gets easier. I just think there maybe there's m- more time between the hard in a good marriage. It, it, it doesn't happen as often as frequently. 
So it's always work, and the good Lord's always up for helping us. I think the one thing maybe that stands out with our kids that we taught from a very early age is mutual respect. And that wasn't just between them, that was with everyone, you know, the whole idea of valuing each other, respecting each other. And I think because I came from a larger family where, for whatever reason, my parents didn't treat each of us differently, uniquely. I think we always really tried to figure out what each kid was and try to really give them that space to be who they were, not insist each of them were like the other. There's so much pressure for younger siblings to be like the older sibling or they're compared to a lot. And we really tried not to do that. Um, I think I think it really is that balance of, and this is a huge theological issue too in churches, in communities, is you have both the respect for the individual, but you also have the respect for the group. It's called the one and the many. You can't just be a advocate for individual rights and freedom. And you can't just be an advocate for groupthink and dismiss the individual. It's that one in the many that is so important for kids to understand. They are valuable, but they're part of a group, a tribe, that they also have to contribute to and be part of and think about. So we used to do a lot of talking about this is right now, but later on you're still going to have each other. And so what you do now is going to impact the way you are together later. Think about that. You know, friends come and go for the most part, can anyway, but sisters and brothers are always around in some fashion. So you could have each other for a lifetime of friendship too, besides being siblings, if you really think about that. And I think Drew was really good at exposing them to other ways of thinking. So, um, you know, our, our kids... Uh, I think maybe this gets in, we'll get into a little bit later, but there's something called hothouse Christianity, you know, where kids can be so cocooned in Christian think and the, that way of doing that, when they get free of that, it's like, blah, you know, <laughs> they're going to just go nuts and figure out and experiment with everything. We really tried to expose them to different ways of thinking, different faiths, different uh, convictions and things like that, so that it wasn't so much maybe the forbidden fruit, but they knew it was out there and they had heard about it and it wasn't such a shock to their system as they got older and were exposed to things. That's really good. Um, Hothouse Christianity, that's funny. I haven't heard that phrase, Mm -hmm. but I like it. So with helping your kids learn mutual respect, was it just the way you talked about it at home? Uh, Well, I yeah, I think so, and I think... um, probably modeled. Drew and I, neither of us are screamers or hollers. We weren't, uh, you know, we kind of had a mutual agreement that if there was a disagreement, we did that privately. We didn't do that in front of the kids, not in the sense that we did never disagree with each other in front of them. But if there was really an issue, we worked it out first before we came to the kids with it. So that was kind of the united front thing. Um, You know, there's probably ways in which we did that too much where we, you know, were so not the fighting kinds of parents that maybe our kids didn't learn to do that as well as they might have if we had done it more publicly. But I think the other thing, I remember one time Jeffrey um, said to us, he couldn't have been more than, oh, he couldn't have been more than three years old. He was helping Drew downstairs building something. And so Anne was bare, just a baby. And he said, you know, when I grow up, I'm going to marry Anne. <laughs> I said, no. No, not going to do that. Yeah, I'm, when I grow up, I'm going to marry Anne. No, Jeffrey, 
you know, boys don't marry their sisters. When they grow up, if you get married, it will be another girl somewhere else from another family. And he got this look on his face. He said, well, then what are we keeping her for? <laughs> and I, I turned to Drew right away and I said, no, who taught him that? <laughs> because neither of us have thought that way or talked that way about women like they are kept for some purpose for some guy, you know. So some things like that slip in once in a while. Where does that come from? I don't know. He got picked it up somewhere. But we really, oh, you know, the other thing we did that was not so much uh, intelligently planned, it just happened. We shared roles a lot. There was no rigidity in who did what in our household, partly out of necessity. Sometimes I had to go to work more because what I could do was more lucrative than what Drew was doing at the time. Sometimes he stayed home with the kids. Sometimes I stayed home with the kids. You know, he did, we just, the role rigidity wasn't there. So I think they learned mutual respect in that too, that you just kind of, you have to plug in and do what you can do for the whole, whether you like it or not, whether it's your best thing or not. And I see that in all of our kids. They're very flexible about what they do and when they do it with each other. I've noticed that with Jeff and Jackie for sure because yeah. I know them the best. But absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Like I know Jeff is a teacher and in the summers he's home with the kids. Yeah. And yeah. I know that Jackie's pursued her career in yeah. science and she's yeah. amazing. And yeah. so it's neat to see how they really support each other. Yeah. something I've noticed. Yeah. And we did, we did that a lot. You know, if Drew was in school, I was working primarily and when I was in school he was working primarily but we were always tag teaming at home I remember one time when my sister was taking care of one of our kids one of the girls and uh, she cut her peanut butter sandwich some way that Jamie wasn't used to having it cut and instead of saying what she said was my dad doesn't cut my sandwiches that way and my sister was kind of shocked at that because she said how many kids do you hear that from that that's not the way my dad does right. my sandwiches. Right, it's usually my mom. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there was enough back and forth so that they learned that that's how you get what you need done, you know, by kind of jumping in where you have to. And We're all a team. Taking turns. And, yeah. You know, so, yeah, I think that, it, like I said, it wasn't some great intelligent design we had. It was sort of of necessity we had to do that. But I think there were theological reasons in Drew's and, and my understanding of the scripture that certainly facilitated that, the mm. value of both and... Mutual respect. Yeah, mutual respect, and that God calls and God gives gifts for a person to use and and provides what's needed when is needed, all of that, and irrespective of male or female or anything like that. So, oh, That's so good. So encouraging. Um, so when you became a pastor, your kids were pretty much grown. Then, well, they were. They? Uh, when I was went to seminary, they were um, I, uh, eighth grade, sixth grade, and third grade. Okay. When I went to seminary, so when I got out, my first ordained call, Jeff was going into his junior year of high school, okay. and was going into high school ninth grade, and Jamie was just starting middle school sixth grade at that time in the Chicago suburb we were in. Yeah, that's awesome. And so. Um, what were some of the great things about, I guess, raising what we call PKs, pastors, kids? Like, what were some yeah. of the great things about then bringing all of your family into ministry at that point? Well, they have immediate family and friends. You know, mm-hmm. the, they will say this as they got older and went away from home, they would walk into a church. Nobody knew them or cared who they were a lot of times. You know, they were used to going into a church and yeah. everybody knew their name and it was all fun times and. You know, getting invited to all sorts of stuff like, you know, wow, who can not like that, right? Totally. Yeah, so it was instant family, instant community, real connectedness right away. Um, 
So that was that was always very positive. Uh, lots of support around them all of the time. And that's the way church should be, right? Yes, yes, it should be that way. My kids love church, and yeah. that makes me so happy that yeah. they love to be here. Yeah. And I've kind of noticed that now that I'm on staff, they sort of see themselves as insiders now. Yes, that's right. <laughs> you know, they, the perks, right? They know where the candy ball they is. They know where to go to get stuff. <laughs> that's right. That's right. What were some of the harder things um, that you maybe needed to guard against as you had you're raising them in the church? Yeah, that's what I mentioned before, this hothouse Christianity mm-hmm. thing where you make assumptions because they're, it's, they're always around it. It's always around them that everything's okay. And um, you, a lot of times I hear parents say, oh, you know, Johnny loves Jesus and has decided to follow Jesus and Johnny is seven years old or something. One thing we tried to say, be very explicit about it, it was very intentional with our kids is you love Jesus now and you're following him right now. We hope that you will continue to make that decision as you get older because you will have to be confronted with decisions that can take you away from loving and following Jesus. And so it's a decision you have to continue to make throughout your life. And we hope and pray you will grow to love Jesus your whole life. But, you know, be careful. Be careful. Because we were raised, you know, this is funny, Cynthia, we were raised in very strict, very uh, fundamentalistic, kinds of homes, both Drew and I. And we weren't allowed to make any decisions ourselves at all until you were 18, and then you got to make whatever decisions you want at 18. But until you're 18 and you live in this house, you do this, this way, this, this way. Except we could accept Jesus as our Savior and decide to follow him for our whole life. And there's sort of a, a contradiction in that, isn't there? That the most important decision of your life you can make at any time, and that's okay. But you can't make any other decisions until you're 18. So we really, for right or wrong, we decided we wanted to make them aware that there's a developmental process to making these kinds of decisions. And yes, clearly God can claim a child from birth, and so they always belong to the Lord. But we kind of go in and out of our understanding of how we're related to Christ. And the other thing we did we talked about was exposing them to other things. Drew read the Bhagavad Gita with Jeffrey. We read the Book of Mormon. We showed them these other things that were out there so that they knew this was not something that, you know, they, that they had to be afraid of, um, learning to think for themselves that they would eventually have to come to make this decision on their own. was really it, That was pretty intentional on our part. And so, um, you know, we're grateful that to this date, three of the three are still um, in that category where they yeah. love Jesus and are serving him to the best of their ability. That's awesome. I love that you read like other faith yeah, yeah. Uh, literature yeah, with that. Yeah. Because we do that like in seminary, you know, yeah. like we're encouraged to do that. Or I think Christian colleges probably do the same. Yeah. Because it's really cool that you yeah. did it. Well, it was more Drew than me, but yeah, he so, he, he really wanted to expose them to things. There was actually a book called, um, it was by a man named M. Griffith many years ago, but he called it Inoculating Children. That just like with a vaccine, you give them a little bit of something so that their body builds antibodies to it. You inoculate them with other faiths, other ideas, other philosophies, so that their body builds understanding of it enough so that when it comes at them full force, they go, well, I know about that. Mm-hmm. That's not new to me. That's not something that's going to threaten me because I know it's this or that. So I think it came from that that book probably we both read as young parents that uh, really encouraged us to do that, not to be afraid of exposing them to other things so that they could build up an understanding enough of other faiths, other ideas, so that they weren't sort of taken back by it when all of a sudden they're confronted with, what, somebody doesn't believe Jesus? Right. Wow. 
Right. Who knew? You know. Yeah, my uh, my eight year old son is in public school, and he's come home to me and said, "Mommy, so and so doesn't believe in God," and so. It's, you know, it starts yeah. very young. And yeah. it's interesting to me that he's even already having these conversations, which yeah. is, I think is really neat. Because yeah. I totally joke with our um, children's director that he's my little theologian because uh-huh. he doesn't always act, you know, oh. Christian, of yeah. course. <laughs> <laughs> but he's got a lot in his little brain that he processes and he gets, he's got, and so I, I think yeah. that's neat. And I think yeah. that. You know, we make decisions about how we raise our children and where we raise them. Mm-hmm. And like, for me, I think it's really important to have them, at least for now, in public school because mm-hmm. I want them to mm-hmm. have that, mm-hmm. you know, that they're not constantly surrounded mm-hmm. by Christian friends. Yeah, but, I think, and again, different children yeah, need different kinds absolutely. of supports and resources. Ours, you know, did fine. I and mean, I don't they struggled. They yeah, and struggled. I don't want to say that as yeah. like any kind of judgment against no, anyone no, who makes different no. decision. But yeah, I, I mean, what I'm just massively aghast at how anyone can do it. I could never do is homeschooling. Yeah. Wow, that is something. Thank God he didn't call me to do that. <laughs> I just interviewed a woman I actually in our church who homeschooled, and she's amazing. Oh, they, they are. They're just like, wow, I want to be able to do that. I wish I was able to do that, but there is no way I could have done that. Yeah. I just wasn't, it just wasn't wired in It's that not way. my calling either. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what advice would you have for me or other women in ministry positions about how to navigate Christian work and raising children well? Um. I remind myself, this is true of, of my husband, too, is they are, it is not their job and they are not paid to do it. You know, there's a lot of times where as a family, a tribe, we do things together and that's important. But I think as a person who's your job and you're paid to do it, I find I have to decide what's really important that I want them to be with me at and not drag them to everything. You know, kids too. I mean, obviously when they're younger, there's things you want them to do, just like you make them eat and sleep and read and all those things. They don't get to say, I don't want to go to church. But as they grew older, we were able to say, okay, here's your choice. You don't have to go Sunday night, Wednesday night, and Friday nights, but you need to pick one of the three that you will attend regularly and be a part of. So we tried to, this gradual development of making their own choices, tried to do that, not demand they be on call all the time as the pastor's kids. And my husband, too. I have to be very careful to say, this is an event I really want you to go to. I need you to go to. And not every time I have something to go to, expect that he's going to go along. I think that was really important. And um, I think that uh, for them to be able to um, have some spiritual independence, mm. you know, not to be threatened when they express or are asking questions that aren't exactly the way you ask them or the way you would express it, but to give them that independence. Because I think, Cynthia, what that does is communicates to them that you trust God more than you trust yourself. Hmm. That you trust them with, that it, ultimately they belong to God. They're in his hands, not ours. We have them just for a time. And we used to say that to them too. You know, you can make a decision about this. Just remember, eventually you will answer to God yourself, not to us. Right now, we answer to God for you as your parents, but there will come a day when you won't answer to us, and we won't answer to God for you. You will do that yourself. So think carefully about the decisions that you make, the choices you make as you get more wow. independence. is pretty big. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> that's, that's a lot, but I, I love the way you say that, yeah. but I mean, that is, yeah. uh, you're right, and it's, 
allowing them that chance to sort of yeah. grow and become independent. Yeah. And, make and know choices. that ultimately that is the truth. They yeah. will answer to God himself, not to us as parents. And that God is gracious and bottomless in his love in that, you know? So it's okay. It's absolutely okay. Yeah. Those are great things to hold in balance. Yeah. Answering to him, yet also yeah. his love. <laughs> yeah. Well, then there's the fatigue issue yeah. and all that. <laughs> Exhaustion. <laughs> Exhaustion and truths. Um, what is something that you did as you were raising your kids that you felt really helped them connect to the person of Jesus versus just religion or the faith of your family? Well, again, you might have to ask them that question. Maybe I'll ask them that question sometime when we're talking. But I, I think the key is that spiritual conversation and Jesus talk is all the time. It's not on the way to church and after you get done with you know vacation Bible school, but it's everywhere. It's just part of the air you breathe. And it doesn't mean you're always talking about it, but you clearly talk about it in all different spaces in life. Um, I think you you have to have that openness so that they know that honestly Jesus is present everywhere, not just in church, and and even as a mom, I think and a pastor, there were many times when I had to model that I had to practice what I was teaching and preaching in the home. I couldn't say you can't say thing one thing up front and then go home and and do it differently. You just can't do that. <laughs> it's 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 lethal to faith. I think for kids especially. And that relationships are the most important. They really are the most important thing. This has been so much fun, Candy. Thank you so much. You've shared, like, so much. And it's been such good things to, like, to chew on. Um, the question I always like to end with um, is, you know, I like to say that being a mom is messy. And none of us are perfect. And I think we just have to embrace the messiness mm-hmm. and encourage each other that God doesn't expect us to be perfect. So, Candy, mm. can you share any messy mommy stories with us? Didn't I tell you to take this question out <laughs> of the interview? <laughs> oh, I could uh, I could talk for hours about messiness as a mom. Uh, I remember one in particular. Again, I'm going to pick on Jeffrey again because oh, good. Uh, because uh, I know him. And he can handle it. <laughs> yeah, he can. Um, I don't remember exactly what... It was when I was a children's ministry director, and I was doing some of the same things that you were doing, doing some mom studies and things. And I was at home studying for something. I don't remember what it was. It might have been Hosea. For some reason, that comes to mind. I was doing uh, some prepping for teaching Hosea. And Jeffrey was home, and he was just being a twit. He was just being hard to get along with and real mouthy when I would say something, just real mouthing back at me. And and I remember I did the same. I just got really angry and impatient, and I mouthed right back at him. And then I turned around back to my desk where I'm studying to teach this right. lesson, right? Studying the Bible. Yeah. And and it just it, it took it didn't take very long to go, wow. That's fabulous. <laughs> you know, go just keep preparing for other people, and there's your son that you just treated like he was treating you. And I remember, I don't know how long it took, but I remember going back to him and saying, I'm so sorry, Jeffrey. And not just sorry that I was rude to him or talked to him mm-hmm. badly, but I said, I do not want to be the kind of person that teaches the Bible to other people mm. and then doesn't live it with you. Mm. 
I remember the room we were in. In fact, we were in the computer room in our house in Kansas, and and um, he was playing at the Commodore 64. <laughs> you know, that's how long ago it was. And um, I can still see it. I can still feel it in my heart, mm. that, that disparity between what I was teaching and what I was doing. Mm. So that happens a lot, and I think mm. you have to stop and say, I'm sorry. Mm. Uh, I t- and, and for men, too, my dad, one of the, my biggest memories of my dad was when he, in tears, went to my sister and apologized for something he had done. Mm. Big, you know, strapping, strong guy who was pretty gruff military type. He was military guy. And yet he was on his knees in tears saying, please forgive me. I should not have done that, said that. And I think that's really true. I think that's the that models strength of character. It models, you know, bottomless love, all mm-hmm. the things we've been talking about. So, yeah, it's messy a lot. <laughs> Thank you, Candy. This has been so much fun to talk to you. And I just think it's so encouraging to hear, you know, your messy story, of course. And I'm when he and just to see obviously how your children are wonderful people who love the Lord and are raising their own children in the church. And it's just neat to see that legacy that you have created. And I just think it's something that us moms, it's like our our dearest thing, our dearest yeah, heart is that yeah. we just so want our children yeah. to grow up knowing Jesus yeah, too. And yeah. that, um, yeah, at least yeah. for me, that's what I want more than anything else yeah. is for them to be connected to Jesus yeah. themselves. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks for inviting me. It was a blast. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening, ladies. Join us on Fridays as we continue to revisit episodes of the Hashtag Mom Life podcast and our summer of storytelling. I pray that the summer has brought you joy and some great times with your kids. I'm personally thrilled to be done with distance learning, and I'm loving being able to be present with my kids and keep our pace slow. Remember, ladies, you're the best possible mom for your kids because God gave them to you. You are enough. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have everything you need to handle anything that comes your way today. If you find these podcast conversations encouraging and helpful, please subscribe, share them with a friend, and give us a positive review on iTunes. You can find out more about today's episode, show notes from our discussion, and listen to past conversations at momlife.ljpress.org. Hashtag MomLife is a ministry of La Jolla Presbyterian Church. Today's episode is produced by myself and Jim Sedgwick, and I'm your host, Cynthia Blaze. I pray that you can see the wonderful presence of God in your life today.